Please be seated. The Lord be with you. Our friends, good morning and uh, welcome to church. Uh, today we don't have any more roadblocks, uh, unlike yesterday. Uh, um, why not uh, let me begin with a prayer as we start. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful opportunity to gather together uh, as a family around your word and around uh, your, your supper later. And we pray, Father, your spirit guide us, open our hearts to you as you uh, reveal yourself to us through your word. And pray, Father, that uh, you will guide me uh, to speak truthfully and honestly, uh, faithfully to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our friends, we continue our series on First Timothy. Um, today we will be on chapter 6. Actually, we will be starting on the last part of verse 2. Uh, that is uh, under that big bow uh, heading false teachers and uh, true contentment on, in page 1185 of your church Bible. And uh, as usual, in the middle of your church bulletin, you will have a, a sermon guide if you are following this sermon. Well, friends, uh, we started with this series on First Timothy by looking at uh, Paul's instructions to Timothy and to Christians down the ages to ensure that sound doctrine, uh, in accordance with the gospel, be faithfully preserved and thought. Uh, we have also seen what sound doctrine truly means, that it is in Christ, Jesus, that men and women uh, would be saved. In fact, when we look at, uh, refer back to chapter 1, verse 15, uh, Paul tells us that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And how he did this was that he came and by his death and his resurrection, uh, Jesus ascended uh, and by his resurrection as mediator of uh, man and God and his promise to return at the end, at the end of the age, uh, Jesus has made it possible for uh, true believers to be saved. And the only possible response from us as true believers and followers of Jesus, is that we uh, respond by loving God and also by loving others uh, in response to this amazing grace of God. We also see how church, uh, any church that do not teach such love has failed in its task to ensure sound doctrine. Sound doctrine ensures love inside the, the church. In other words, the sacrificial and loving redemption accomplished by our Lord Jesus Christ at the cross sits at the focal point of our faith. More, all other teachings are false, no matter how seductive or desirable they might seem to be. It was then and remains today, our post warning to guard ourselves and to guard those who are under our care or our, our friends around us against false teachers. Uh, who will deceive us to treat our salvation or to depend on our salvation on something else are false that cannot save us. And part of this is choosing good leaders, uh, which is especially important in the context of a church to ensure that they model uh, godly living besides their teaching and to ensure our pro proper godly behavior in the church body. Last week, uh, we saw what is proper church behavior concerning older men or younger men and also concerning older or younger women. And we also saw how church should support widows who truly have no one else to turn to and how to treat pastors and leaders and elders of the church. And we also saw another aspect, what godly behavior of the f uh, in the family 
Uh, and uh, within this godly behaviour in the family, we see in two vital aspects of first century life, uh, but which also remains applicable today to us. Firstly, financially providing for those, uh, for close relatives who have no other means of, um, of uh, supporting themselves, particularly uh, for those who are widows, reminding us today of our duty towards those uh, needing members of our family who otherwise uh, would be left uh, quite desperate. And secondly, how bond servants or slaves are to treat their Christian ma uh, masters in the face of freedom and equality to be found in Christ. And that remain, reminds us again, friends, today of the proper uh, Christian behavior in our workplace with Christian co-workers or superiors. So as we turn to our passage today on 1 Timothy 6, uh, on page 1185, we see Paul uh, starting by saying uh, to Timothy, teach and urge these things in verse 6, uh, the end of verse uh, 2 of uh, chapter 6, the result of false doctrines. Now, Paul's teachings throughout this episode is clear. Sound doctrine leads to godliness and false doctrine leads to godlessness. And this opening instruction to Timothy most likely refers to what Paul has taught in the immediate preceding verses uh, on godly behavior in church and family in chapter 5. But this teaching is also firmly anchored on the foundation of sound doctrine. And sound doctrines, on the other hand, is described by Paul in verse 3 as those who do not agree to the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teachings that are caused with godliness. Paul describes the problem in verse 4. The teacher thinks more highly of himself than the originator of true godliness, our Lord Jesus Christ himself. This teacher has not understood anything at all. He has not been able to unravel uh, what Paul previously called the, the mystery of godliness in chapter 3, verse 16. I like to think of the words of the 17th century French carol uh, that uh, remains to this day one of my favorite uh, hymns uh, to describe or to illustrate this point, the mystery of godliness that, that exists within this, uh, uh, this carol. This carol says of God the Son, who was rich beyond all splendor, but for love's sake, becoming poor to serve his poor to serve his own creatures by even dying in order to save them. Of him who is God beyond all praising, but for love's sake, stooping so low to descend to earth, so that he might raise sinners upwards to heavenly heights, where he sits and reigns today with God the Father in all his glory. Well, friends, an intellectual understanding of this principle of true godliness is insufficient by itself. For godliness implies a life that honors and worships Jesus as Savior and King, who now continues to work in us as our sanctifier, making us more like Him, that transforms, that transforms our every relationship and our behavior in every circumstance and every situation that we face. Of Emmanuel living in us, urging us to live in accordance with this teaching and example molding us, making us to what he would want us to be. And Paul continues, 
The wider problem is that this false teacher who brings in this false type of teaching that's against uh, uh, what Jesus, the sound words of Jesus is. The wider problem is that this false teacher influences other people beyond himself. It's not that. If he only impacts himself, it doesn't really matter. In other words, this false teacher spreads ungodliness and has a devastating effect on the church. You look at verses 4 and 5. Verses 1 and 5, it creates all kinds, of, all kinds of terrible things in church. Controversy, quarrelings about words, producing envy and, and, and dissension, slander, evil suspicions and overall constant friction among the people. Friends, a divisive church such as this will even mistake the disunity as a sign that they are godly. You know why? Because they are the godly ones. Those who disagree with them, those who strive with them, they are the ungodly ones because they do not know uh, the truth. Um, worst thing is they will actually leverage such a situation, such a, uh, a situation of thinking that they, are uh, they, they know uh, godly doctrine in order to profit from teaching this. Uh, Paul sums up this by saying, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now, this wrong focus on godliness is the exact opposite of what godliness should be. Godliness should bring about contentment, Paul says, with whatever the Lord has given to us in verse 6. Human desires for more than food and clothing will result in people struggling stupidly to make more and more money. I wish you look again at this in more detail in the words of Proverbs 23. I will come back to it later. And such activity does not bring about happiness. Rather, they will cause unhappiness. They will ruin our relationships with each other and ultimately ruin our, uh, our relationship with God. We will replace our love of God with our love for money. And in verse 10, Paul states this very clearly. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And it's so sad, friends, uh, myself not include, excluded. At times, we fall into the trap of thinking that if only I have that little extra money, if only I can leverage my, uh, my uh, stock holdings a little bit uh, differently, uh, I would be making more money and therefore I would be more happy. And this is where Paul, in verses 6 to 8, used words from Scripture uh, from Job, from Psalms, from uh, the Proverbs, to remind us of two things. Firstly, naked we have come into the world, and naked we will return. And secondly, the little that we possess in the reverence of God is better than unrighteous plenty or unrighteous riches. And the most terrible consequence is when striving for the sake of having more money draws us away from our faith, and condemns us eternally to God's wrath. The real gain, friends, is a life lived honouring God, content in His blessing in His life, and a sure hope, a sure hope in His promise of an eternal life with Him. And so we come to the next part of our passage from 11 to 16, godliness and expression of faith. And Paul continues to instruct Timothy, Avoid unsound practices, he said. Turn your back uh, to these things. 
In fact, run away from them, so to speak. Uh, don't, don't, don't even want to face them face to face. This includes all the errors and sins that have been mentioned before, the controversy, the hunger of gain, the desire to be rich, sendless needs to pamper to our physical and, and uh, other needs, and the love of money, etc., 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 that we have seen before. Rather, Timothy is to chase after the holiest of desirable things in verse 11. Uh, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. And Paul instructs Timothy to stand firm in the, in the faith with its promise of eternal life. The picture that Paul paints here, if you can see it clearly, is that of a ring inside which two boxers or are in combat or two combatants are in combat or in a fight with each other. And he is reminding uh, Timothy, remain strong and faithful, yet striving hard towards the victory so that at the end of the day, you being victorious will receive the prize. And what a prize it is. It is eternal life. Paul goes on in verse 12 to explain a little bit about eternal life here. Firstly, eternal life is about God's sovereign call to Timothy to which you were called. It applies to us as well, friends. For God calls us to know Him. God calls us to know Him. For God wants really wants to be known by us. Secondly, eternal life is shown by Timothy's response to this call by God. Paul says this, you made the good confession. Friends, this is equally applicable to us today. Just what is our human response to this call? Will we still make the good confession like Timothy in spite of any suffering and difficulty as we face uh, difficulty in our lives? So what do, or do we know what this good confession is? Well, let's look at verse 13 and see what it says. Timothy's good confession is explained by linking it to the good confession of Jesus Christ before Pontius Pilate. This historic event is recorded later in all the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, that uh, uh, Reverend Stephen Raj read just now, and in John uh, 18. Let me just pick an extract of what Jesus said from John 18. Pilate asked, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. The truth that Jesus mentioned in John is the entire gospel message, isn't it, friends? That God so loved the world that he sent his son to become man, to suffer and die on the cross so that he can bear the sin of the whole world. That though Jesus is king, he is king far beyond the imagination, far beyond what human beings could ever imagine, far beyond what Pilate, that uh, Roman uh, governor, in Palestine could ever have imagined. His God, the King, the Son of God, God the Son, the King of the heavenly realms, not only of the Jews. The Gospel is the confession that Timothy has made on his comment or commissioning by the elders. He has met, uh, he has confirmed at his commissioning that that is the Gospel message that he will follow and will hold tight to himself. And just as Paul commands us, uh, commands Timothy, so we too are to keep pure the gospel message 
until Christ's return, to proclaim it faithfully, truthfully, and to obey what it commands, living our lives as an example of godliness. Let's see what verses 15 and 16 has to say about how, how Christ's return is to be brought about. Oh, in summary, it is by the unimaginable power, unimaginable power, the greatness, the awesome majesty of the Almighty God Himself. Let me read 15, 16 to you. Which He will display at the proper time, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to Him be honour and eternal dominion. Amen. Though we are more familiar, friends, with the, these words of sovereign, king of kings, and lots of laws to describe Jesus, Paul has used them here to describe God the Father, the almighty God the Father himself, who will, on that last day of human history, place everything in creation at the feet of his son, Jesus Christ, thus painting a picture of God the Father and God the Son together in immeasurable splendor, power and majesty. Now friends, today the church celebrates the feast of Christ the King. That's why we're in red. But even while we do it, it is sad to see that there is so little recognition of the awesome majesty of Jesus Christ and of his sovereignty and kingship and lordship over our lives, even as we continue to call ourselves his disciples. We should use this feast day to think of, day, of ways of holding Jesus up as our Christ the King. How we treat the temptations of this world, especially in this age of the internet. How we honour Jesus in our relationships with each other, especially in our relationships in our marriage, in our relationships with other men and women, particularly in our relationships with other people of the same sex. How we bring up our children in the awe and worship of this King, Sovereign, Lord of Lords, who saves us from our sin. We should examine ways how we should glorify Him. Paul has one suggestion in the last part of our passage from 17 to 21. Oh no, he didn't have a suggestion. In fact, he has a command for us in the following verses as he looks at how Christians should manage or approach the question of wealth, godliness and wealth. Let me read 17 to you. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Not to be proud of their wealth and not to depend on their wealth. Paul's teaching not to struggle for uncertain wealth in this passage finds an obvious parallel in Proverbs 23, verses 4 to 5, on page 6. Five, one that I mentioned before. I will read it to you. Proverbs 23, 4 to 5. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to be seized. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle towards heaven. Friends, wealth is described by the, uh, by the writer of Proverbs as something that can grow wings and fly away and disappear from your, from your sight. And uh, we should not depend on it. So Paul continues to say, rather, these rich members of our congregation, uh, of our church, are to put their hopes not on uncertain wealth, but on God himself. 
God indeed has already provided richly for us, provided everything we need. Every breath that we take is something that God has richly provided for us, even though the things that we enjoy, not that the air and care is all that great, but every breath that we take is a gift from God. And the rich who does not apply this wealth wisely or in godly ways can only enjoy wealth. In the temporary joy and the temporary joys of this present world. In the final analysis, their wealth could not provide them the joys of the world to come, the price of eternal life. So, how now? How can we assure that our faith, uh, our faith and certainty of uh, assurance can come together? How are the rich to place their wealth on certainty? Well, Paul teaches this in 18. Let's look at it. Firstly, they are to do good, spend their wealth on worthy things, to distribute their wealth to provide uh, for those who are not so able to provide for themselves. Secondly, they are to be generous, not stingily giving, grudgingly and complaining all the time. And thirdly, to be rich in good works, not only to give off their wealth or possessions or, or their material things, but to actively participate in helping others with their talents, their effort and time. In summary, what Paul is saying is that they are to willingly share a part of themselves with others who are not so able as themselves. And verse 19, verse 19 says this, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. It sounds suspiciously like he is teaching justification by works. But Paul does not mean that at all. He is saying that those who recognize that they can be truly rich only in the eternal things to come when Christ returns. These are the ones who will apply happily and willingly their, faith, their, their wealth to the things of verse 18. These are the ones. All other things are temporary and uncertain. They are not true wealth at all. Only those that are applied to, uh, to achieve, uh, to do it happily and willingly, uh, focusing their minds on the eternal things to come. And the mark of godly living is to utilize what they have in order to provide for those who are more needy than themselves. And in our final two verses, 20 to 21, we have a final charge, a threefold commandment, if you like, to hold on to uh, tight to the uh, uh, true teachings or sound doctrine. Firstly, Paul uses the words to guard the deposit entrusted. To guard means to protect from corruption, or in the words of verse 14, unstained and free from reproach. The deposit entrusted being the true doctrines taught by Paul to Timothy. Secondly, urging Timothy to avoid the irrelevant babel and contradictions, once again warning in the broader context of uh, chapter 1, verses 6 to 11, against the vain discussion without understanding their own teachings, contrary to sound doctrine. And three, it is likely that Paul here directs special attention when he uses the phrase falsely called knowledge to warn against the early appearance of the Gnostic teachings that would become much more pronounced in the, the mid-second century, a doctrine that teaches that Christ is not truly God and that uh, uh, man is saved by that spark of knowledge in themselves. He could have been referring uh, and warning against the early appearance of this teaching. And now, friends, 
The same charge today has great reverence for us. While pastors, ministers and elders are the primary guardians of this deposit, it applies to every single one of us, to me, to you, to every single one of us. We are to hold on to what is sound doctrine and not to be led astray. And we're not to invite or allow those of unsound doctrines to teach and to mislead the church to abandon the true faith creating disunity and controversy and all kinds of disunity and dissension in the church. So in conclusion, friends, let me summarize what we have seen from today's passage. Number one, the result of false doctrines can bring a church to its knees. There will be disunity and conflict. There will be an absence of love. There will be an unwillingness to serve God there will be an unwillingness to serve each other. Instead, there will be a major focus on something else besides God, besides the, the salvation that has been given to us through Jesus Christ. It might be riches. We might imagine teachers teaching us that riches are the result of godly living, of godliness, and we have earned it through our own effort. Um, the worst result is when the love of wealth drives us away from our faith and our dependence on Jesus, our Saviour. Number two, each of us must play our part to avoid unsound teachers and their teachings. We must yearn heartily, truly, for true Bible and faithful teachers, a true biblical and faithful teachers and pastors. And we must always take action to protect our church from false teachers and must never allow them to have influence over us. The worst thing to happen is when these teachers draw us away from worshipping Jesus as king in our lives and instead cause us to worship false idols like money and to put our trust in temporary things of this world rather than the permanent treasures of heaven. Today, we are reminded that St. Mary's is still in deficit as you can find in page 5 of your church bulletin and letter, Dr. Wynne will talk about it. Some of us will talk about it. St. Mary's is still in deficit as collections have fallen short of target. May today's lesson encourage us to dig deeper into our pockets to further God's kingdom on earth. And lastly, on this day as we celebrate the Feast of Christ the King, we remember that Jesus is unlike any worldly king that we know. Even the most pomp, the most grand, the, the most uh, rich uh, king in the world cannot be compared to Jesus Christ our Lord. We worship an omnipotent, all-powerful, all-majestic and immortal God who nonetheless descended to earth as a servant king. He descended not to oppress us or to stop us having fun on earth. He is a king. He is a king humble enough and loving enough to come down to die for his own people so that they will inherit eternal life. And we must look for ways to live in godliness, to witness to him, both individually and as a church, and to wait patiently and confidently for his return. And as we do so, Let's hold on tight to this promise of an eternal life with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your message, uh, for your words from uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6. We thank you for the timely reminder uh, that we should not uh, park our 
focus on uncertain wealth and on other uncertain things and idolize them, but rather that we should uh, place them firmly at the foot of the cross, knowing that redemption for our sins had been accomplished by Jesus on it, even as he suffered and died for us 2,000 years ago. We are reminded once again, Lord, and we thank you for this, that he is sovereign, king of kings, lords of laws. Please teach us to live lives that will honor him and give him recognition for this glory, greatness, majesty, and immortality that we will uh, one day share with him. And we pray all this in his mighty name. Amen.